Well, can you believe it? We're on to our final series for the year. We move into the end of this series. We have a celebration and then into Christmas. And that's a celebration too. So um, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Just seemed like yesterday we were... We launched this year with um, Salt and Light and Be the Church, and now here we are entering into our final series. But this is a great series because it's a confidence-building series. I was saying this morning that, you know, you should come out of each of these messages this Sunday and in the coming Sundays feeling confident, feeling encouraged and sure of who you are. And that's really important. We, we live in a world where people are having identity crises. They're sort of trying to figure out who they are, but... You know, we know who we are, and I'm gonna, we're going to remind um, you of that over these coming weeks so that you can step forward confidently knowing who you are. Let's look at uh, Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 18. So I'm going to introduce this series this morning, and uh, I'm sure that as we go through these coming weeks that each message will sort of add on and build more confidence and assurance of who we are in Christ. As we've sung this morning, what an awesome person, what an awesome God is our Jesus. Wouldn't you agree? So this morning, if you feel like agreeing with me, that's okay, all right? If you want to say yes, because I'm going to say some things this morning that I think that you will want to get excited about, because I am. And so this morning, if you're excited, don't hold back. It's okay, all right? We're friends here together. So if you're excited about what I say, agree with me, because they're amazing truths. And they're things that we want to be excited about, because that's what gives us the confidence. These truths that I'm going to share with you, that is what gives us confidence. And we can go forward being confident in who we are in Him. So verse 13, chapter 16, if you're following your Bibles, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. So not everyone's sure who he is. So he says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not to reveal to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not conquer it. Amen? I'm going to tell you this morning that who you are, who you really are. You are a church. So expansive with energy that not even the gates of hell will be able to keep it out. That's who you are. And Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus is saying there's one thing you can count on. In this messed up, screwed up, tangled up world, there's one thing you can count on. I'm going to build my church. Politicians may come and go. Companies may rise and fall. Stocks may have good days and bad days. But Jesus said, one thing is for sure. I'm going to build my church. Is that exciting? Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. And do you know who we are? We are that church. 
North Lakes. We are that church. Hallelujah. Amen. Not could be. We not maybe or might be or possibly could be or maybe one day we'll be in a position when we get ourselves right to be, but we are, we are that church, not potentially, but actually, we are, amen? That's an incredible truth and that's why you can be confident because he said that church will not fail, nothing Nothing can bring it down. So we can have 100% confidence this morning. And you know, there's some markers. There's some markers of people who are the church. And I want to look at five of those markers this morning. These are the people that we are as the church. We are people with resolve. We are determined. We are sure. We are confident because we know who is building the church. And the fact that it will not fail. And so we lead a life marked by conviction and singleness of purpose. I'm going to just reflect briefly on a few characters as I go through some of these markers because they remind us of of what God does in in a person. Think of Joshua. Now, Joshua was a man who succeeded Moses. And what he did was he led the people of Israel to the promised land. Think about the resolve that he had to march around a city, the city of Jericho, seven times. This city was so fortified that people couldn't come come in or out of their own accord. It was so locked up. And he marched around this city seven times. No sign of these walls coming down. He must have looked crazy to lead an army silently marching around these walls, believing that these walls after the seventh time, when they shouted, the walls would come tumbling down. But he had resolve. How do you have that sort of resolve? To march around and do what God says when there seems no sign that it's going to happen. How do, you, how do you have that sort of resolve? Only when you know who God is. God is almighty. God is the leader of the, the, of the heavenly armies of angels. He's amazing. And so because of who God is, he had that resolve. We can have that resolve in our daily life because of who Christ is. We've been singing about it. What a beautiful name. What a wonderful name. What a powerful name, the name of Jesus. And at the name of Jesus, everything bows. So we can have resolve. We can, as the church, have resolve. Joshua said confidently with resolve, I can't speak for anyone else, nor can I tell you what decision to make. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. People of resolve say that. We will serve the Lord. Not we might. Maybe if it's a nice day and we've got nothing better to do, but we will serve the Lord. That's people who are part of that church. Since we are that church, then we are people of courage and confidence. Think about Deborah. Deborah in the Old Testament. Now, she was a lady that was remarkable. She was a prophetess and a judge. And you know, the Israelites had been slaves for 20 years. Imagine what it would be like to be in slavery for 20 years. That's a long time. And, and you can imagine 
they felt crushed and discouraged because of they had been in slavery. But you know, she came along and she inspired them to throw off their yoke of bondage. She led an army of 10,000 men into battle. She stood against the enemy, the Canaanite army, and this is what she said. This day, the Lord will give us the victory because he is marching ahead of us. And with that, she led the army to defeat this Canaanite enemy in a surprise attack. You know, she wasn't courageous and confident in her own ability. She was a woman leading an army of 10,000 men. You could feel a little overwhelmed by that. I wouldn't have blamed her if she did, but she wasn't because of what God said, because of what he said to her. The Lord will give us victory. God said to her, I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to go ahead of you, and you can be sure you will have the victory. That's why we can be courageous. We can step out into something that, we could, that could be very overwhelming for us. But God's already said to us, I've gone ahead. I've already done it for you. I've won the victory. At the cross, Jesus gave everything so that we could have victory in our lives today. He's already done it. He's gone ahead. He's already told us and showed us. And we have that victory so we can be courageous and we can be confident because we are that church, the church that will prevail no matter what. Since we're that church... We are people who are uncompromisingly faithful. I heard the story, and I can repeat this story because um, the the gentleman who told it wrote in a book, so it's out there for public um, information. But uh, he's the principal of uh, St Andrew's uh, School in Sydney, St Andrew's College. It's a big school in Sydney. In fact, it was one of the first schools that was started in Australia when when Australia was first settled. And this church, this school, sorry, began as a Christian school. In fact, education started out as a Christian enterprise here in Australia. It was all Christian-based when education started, and hospitals. It was all done by, started and, and operated under the name of Jesus. wonder what happened and uh, so this school, St Andrews, has been in place since that time. And um, this principal got up at a conference, it wasn't a Christian conference, and he said, um, you know, it's remarkable. It started as a Christian school where the name of Jesus was honoured. And today, the name of Jesus is denied. Humanism, atheism is more what, what characterises this school, still St Andrews, than the name of Christ. And he said, how do you get from there to there? How do you get from being a place that is that honours God to no longer honouring God at all, in fact, denying him? How does that happen? And he said, I'll tell you how. One compromise at a time. Just one. And you think that's not going to matter. It's just that. Just that little bit. That's okay. But then it's the next and the next, and the next, and the next, till finally, it's totally opposite to what it was meant to be. And so the only way that we are going to be the church is to, be, is to not compromise. That's hard. But God has made the way for us to be strong 
And we can be uncompromisingly faithful as the church. We are that because he's made the way for us. I was thinking about Daniel. We referred to him a few weeks ago. And Daniel was a man who uh, was in exile from his own country. And he wouldn't eat the king's meat because he knew that if he did, it would compromise what God had told him to do. And so he stood firm on that. He also ignored a royal decree about um, the fact of, that he wasn't to pray to God. And Daniel had prayed to God three times every day. He would kneel and pray at the window facing Jerusalem. And he, a decree came out saying, you can't do that anymore. If you do that, the consequence is that you're going to be thrown into the den of lions. Many of you may know that story. So here we had a man who, on, on these occasions, would have been, would have you blamed him for compromising, maybe praying still, but maybe with the window shut so that no one could see him? And then they wouldn't know that he was kneeling and praying. He's still praying, he's still kneeling. But he didn't compromise. He wasn't prepared to step away from doing what he had always done. Why should he shut the window? He'd always prayed at the window to Jerusalem. And so he didn't compromise. He stayed faithful. And of course, we know he was put into the lion's den. But God was faithful to him. And he shut the mouths of the lions. And you know what the result of was? Let me read the final verses after Daniel was brought out. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree, I decree, this is the king saying, the one that had put him in the lion's den. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God. And he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And his rule will never end. That's the result of staying uncompromisingly faithful. God is honoured. God is glorified. People come to know who God is. And then they too can, can have the hope of being with God now and forever. But why do people compromise? I think... I sort of looked at two reasons. One, I think, is because they don't want to get on the wrong side of people. So they don't want to sort of get out of sorts with people. So they'll just sort of compromise so that they stay in the good books. And Daniel probably could have done that with the king. He could have wanted to stay in the good books with the king because he was in exile after all. And the king, he was in the king's, who was not his king, king's home. It would have been good to try and stay on the good side of the king. But he wouldn't compromise. I think another reason why sometimes we compromise is because we're afraid of the consequences of what's going to happen if we stand firm. And we look at that and we think, I, like, I don't want that. And so we'll just sort of compromise a little so that we avoid that outcome. Think about Jesus. Jesus could have compromised to keep in with the Pharisees who were the religious rulers of the day. But he wouldn't. He stated what was truth. And just, even although they, the Pharisees hated it, he would not compromise. Do you think that he wasn't afraid to go to the cross? Do you think that as he saw that, 
And he had to go and hang there on the cross and suffer and die. Do you think that he wouldn't have been afraid of that? Of course he was. And it would have been easy for him to call on God and God Almighty, who is his father, say, deliver me from this. You know, call on who he is. He was both God and Matt. Call on that and and get himself out of it. But he knew that he had to go to the cross for us. He knew that was the only way that we could have salvation. He knew that was the only way that we could have life. And so he would not compromise. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that he didn't? Because now we, if we accept what he's done, we can have freedom. We can have the hope of eternity with him. I'm so glad that he didn't compromise. And I'm glad I'm part of his church and that I am uncompromisingly faithful as I trust in him. The, other, the final marker, I believe, not the only, but the fifth one I'm going to talk about today is that, sorry, fourth, I'm up to four, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, is um, that we will have radical purpose. And uh, we are people of radical purpose. We get to change the world as we bring the message of hope of Christ to people. What a great purpose. Esther was um, in the in the Old Testament another character, another lady who was the chosen Persian queen of a king called Xerxes. She was a, so beautiful. She had such grace and charm, and she everyone who saw her loved her, especially the king. But you know, she was a woman of deep faith and courage and patriotism, and you know, she stood went to the king, even although that could be a difficult thing to do. I can't go to the whole story. We haven't got time. But she went before the king to seek his favour for her people. She was instrumental in averting a plan that would have absolutely annihilated her race, her people. And because, because she knew her purpose was for such a time as this to rescue her people, she stayed true. And as a result, her people were given protection, wealth and peace in, their, in the time of their captivity. She was a person of radical pur- purpose. And I believe that we too, as being a part of that church, the church that Jesus is building, that nothing can stand against, we've got radical purpose, haven't we? We can bring into this world hope, when there is, where there is no hope, where there's despair, we can bring joy with the hope of Jesus. In 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10, it says, we are a chosen people. We are, this is what we are, listen to this, we are a royal priesthood. Most of all, we are, you are God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? So that we can fulfill this radical purpose that God has given to us. That's why God is building his church So that people who have that death sentence hanging over their life that are in captivity can be set free. And our purpose is to tell them the message. 
about this, that they do not have to suffer, they do not have to, to be in captivity, they can be set free because of Jesus. Since we are that church, we are people of resilience. Paul said in Galatians 6.9, let's, let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Are you in for the long haul? I hope so. Because God says that if we, are, we stay the line, if we keep going, then we're in for a harvest of blessing. We're going to see people's souls saved. That could be the greatest thing you could ever see, to see a person brought from death to life. Wouldn't you agree? Amen. Hallelujah, Slim. That's great. There's, in fact, we can all say that's what happened, that is what's happened to us. Amen. And if it hasn't happened to you, it can. Because of what Jesus has done, you can be rescued from death, a death sentence, to eternal life in Jesus. All you need to do is accept him. And so as you stay true, Nehemiah in the Old Testament, he was called to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. It was a huge task and he could have been overwhelmed by it, but God called him and he knew God's faithful. And day after day, stone after stone, bit by bit, he rebuilt that wall until it was, it was restored. And this is what God's called us to do. We're part of a building program. But the great thing is that we don't really have to do the work. It says God is building his church. And uh, we are that church. I remember when we first started the church out at Min Mai, for those who were here in those days, uh, we, we, we went out to Min Mai. That's where we first began. Six weeks we started in a house and then we, we grew, outgrew the house. So we went out to a little hall out at Min Mai. And there was about 40 of us. And um, we went around and visited every person in the suburb. And we knocked on their door and we invited them to come and meet us and to, to, come, and, uh, to come to a barbecue. And so we had it all set up, the catering was done, everything was ready. And uh, we were there at Min Mai waiting for the, uh, all the residents to turn up and no one came. <laughs> so I was a bit disappointed. <laughs> and uh, so I remember a couple of weeks after that, I was talking to a lady who... New, you know, had been praying for us with this because this was a new thing that we'd done with uh, planting this church. And, and so this lady had been praying for us in this and she said, how, you know, how are things going? And I said, oh, well, yeah, it's going well, but we did this special, you know, we, we went out and, and knocked every door and we invited everyone and, and um, I said, I was really disappointed because no one came. And she said, oh, Pam. She said, Jesus didn't say Pam will build the church. He said, I will build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And from that day to this, I've had confidence. And look at the church today, North Lakes, what it is. That's not me. That's Jesus building his church. Hallelujah. Amen. That's him. That's what he does. He said, and I never have to take that responsibility. I just have to be faithful. I just have to be obedient because he builds the church. I just want to share with you this morning a couple of stories about uh, William and Catherine Booth. Now, they actually started the Salvation Army in uh, 17, sorry, 18, <laughs> 1878, that's right. <laughs> so um, that's who they are. They're a long time ago and very, 
Now, I just want to say these people, these are people who evidence these five markers. Honestly, I read the stories and I think, wow. You know, God and what, what God did through them. You know, they had vision to see that the only way forward in the work to which God had called them was to create a radically new organisation. They were both in the Methodist church and uh, they wanted to reach the lost. And uh, they wanted to bring people into the church who were lost and the church wouldn't let them. No, they can't come inside here. And so they said, well, we'll go out. We'll go out to them. And so they went out to start this radical new organisation and they had courage. You know, in Victorian times, it was the most revolutionary of institutions. It needed courage to start it and courage to maintain it. William Booth was hit by stones and bricks. Catherine Booth was absolutely verbally abused and ridiculed. When you read the stories, they had people who were killed because they would go out to take the message of Jesus. They were, the police would not support them. They, were sort of, they would just turn a blind eye to what was happening to them. But they had this conviction. They had this resolve. They knew God had called them and they were uncompromisingly faithful. They were rejected by most people. But they stayed true to the radical purpose that Christ had for them as his church. And we are that church. The church of the living God. And as such, Jesus said, we are the salt of the earth. Now in the times of Jesus... And up until the invention of the refrigerator and the freezer, salt was used to preserve food. It would be rubbed into meat and fish, and what it would do is it would would preserve that product so that it could last for a long time. It would stop it from rotting and going bad. Because without salt back then, the food would decay very quickly and would have to be thrown out. So in the same way, we are salt We are meant to be the moral preservatives of our society. We are meant to be the ones that prevent it from decay. The world is rotting slowly, sometimes quickly, when you look at the news. And our responsibility as Christians is to be salt in the world. We are to affect the society in which we live in such a way that we help prevent moral and spiritual decay and preserve what is good. We are to be the conscience of society. That means we need to speak up. We need to speak up. You know, the term human trafficking was not commonly used in the late 1880s. But William Booth was one of the first to recognise the need to oppose sexual and labour exploitation of people, particularly in the poorest areas of London. William Booth took this responsibility to be the salt of the earth really seriously. You know how at the front we have the war cry? It's a paper that the Salvation Army produces. Well, it was started back in 1885 and this is what he wrote about human trafficking. Now something must be done and somebody must do it. We must never see an evil without asking the question, can anything be done to remove it? And you know, as a result of that, the Salvation Army advocated on behalf of that enslaved population and their powerless families. They got a petition together of 393,000 signatures, took it to the British Parliament, and as a result of that, 
the age of consent was raised to 16. That's the action of Christian people, trying to preserve moral integrity in the world. And as a result of that, at that time, we know it's not the case now, but it really reduced the you know, international trafficking of girls. He, you know, William Booth was an incredible moral preservative in his society. Not only did he cause the age of consent to be raised, but he set up labour exchanges where people could uh, work and then as a result get food and lodging. He set up missing persons bureau, lodging houses for men and food for very, you know, just for a few pence so they would have somewhere safe to go. And during the latter part of the 19th century, many workers in the industry of making matches, suffered necrosis, which was called fossy jaw, and as a result of contact with the poisonous material on the edge, you know, the end of the match, they would end up dying. So, particularly women, there was a lot of women employed in this. And so William Booth decided this has to stop. We can't allow this. This is terrible. So he said, what can I do? How can I be salt in this world? He said, I know I'll start a match making, making matches industry. That's what he did. And he set up a, a, a factory and he, and he worked, found out a way whereby we could have safety matches, the ones we have today. And as a result of that, the people that worked there were able to create these and then he went around the country telling people, you, do, you, can't, you, know, you need to use these because they are safe. And in making them, and in the end, his uh, competition change to making you know safety heads on the matches because they were going out of business and so necrosis was totally wiped out isn't that incredible that's being salt that's what god says we are we are the salt of the earth and you know salt's not much use if it's sitting in the cupboard or in the container unless we get the salt out i know how to do this really well how to get the salt out of the container onto the food and uh and so, but unless we get it out of the cupboard and get it onto the food, it's useless, isn't it? What's the point of it? And so we need to get the salt out of our comfort zones and out into society where we are making a difference, where we are preserving the moral standards of our society. And you know, Jesus actually went further than just saying you are the salt of the earth. He went on to say that if salt is not fulfilling its purpose, then it should be thrown out and trampled underfoot because it's useless. From this metaphor, the implication for us is that we can't just sit back. We can't just stay in the cupboard. We can't just stay in our comfort zones. But we just can't uncritically absorb the culture and just not bother about it. We have to get out there and we have to make a difference. We need to speak up. We need to not just let things go by and think, oh, well, that's not nice, that's not good, but, you know, I'm doing this, I'm doing that, and I'm busy, and I haven't got time. You know, when we are absorbed into the culture or withdraw from the culture, we are forsaking our responsibility to be the salt of the earth. And what will happen is our world will keep declining morally and it will keep declining when asked for the secret of his success, William Booth said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there is of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities, 
But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of all Jesus Christ could do with them, on that day I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. If we don't give all, then what happens is we, do, we, we make one compromise at a time. And I think over the years sometimes that the Salvation Army has done that. But we don't have to keep doing that. Because we are the church. Not could be. Not might be. Not ought to be. Not we're in a position that one day we might possibly become. But we are that church. Not potentially, but actually, we are. Amen? Let's stand. Let's declare the name of Jesus. We are that church. Let's stand true. Let's be faithful. Let's have resolve. Let's be resilient and be the church that God has called us to be.